Hey everyone, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined by Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World today. How are you? Good, how are you, Michael? I'm doing quite well. So, DBW happened. What are your memories of such event? Well, this is my third Digital Book World, and I think this was the best one yet. I've said that every single time, but I haven't been lying uh, any of those times. My favorite memories, um, all the stuff on Amazon was really fascinating. Brad Stone, who wrote The Everything Store, and Joe Esposito. I loved <clears throat> Jim Cramer's presentation for Mad Money. He talked for about half an hour about all the different companies involved in book publishing and if they were good investments or not. And He was just extremely entertaining uh, and a good break from some of the heavier stuff in the day. And Maybe my favorite moment was the Digital Book Awards with LeVar Burton. Uh, he was awesome, and he was really entertaining, and the awards were great, and a lot of senior-level executives from publishing companies showed up to accept the awards and gave really thoughtful thank-you speeches. Um, you know, A lot goes into making a really good enhanced ebook or app um, or, or transmedia experience, and, and you know these people showed up, and, and um, I just thought it was a great program. So overall, it was really exciting. At Digital Book World, we created, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 articles about all the different news items that happened at the conference. There were funding announcements, and there were senior executives getting into it on stage with each other. Uh, and we're actually putting together a PDF for all the attendees. They're going to get this free PDF download. Um, of everything we did with the conference with, with images and, and a lot of fun stuff there. So uh, it was a great digital book world. I'm exhausted, um, but I'm, I'm sort of already looking forward to next year. That's usually how it is. You have so much fun that it's like, okay, how are we going to beat this next year? You know, how are we going to, you know, make it bigger? How are we going to get, you know, how are we going to like make it better than the year prior? And that's in itself is always a challenge. Totally. All right, cool. So it sounds like it was a lot of fun, and um, you know we covered it extensively with one of our writers that were there. So, DBW, I'm uh, I'm glad that it was it met your you know it. It seems like everybody really enjoyed it there. There was a lot of people there, and there was a lot of insightful talks and things like that. Um, I've been actually watching a bit of Kramer lately. Um, I kind of fell out of watching it for a while, but it seems as though whenever I'm actually watching him rant and rave, he's usually always talking about Barnes & Noble these days. Yeah, he, he seems a little bullish on Barnes & Noble that, that he, here's the deal. He thinks that Nook, the digital division, is an albatross. And the sooner that Barnes & Noble is rid of Nook, the better. And that there is an opportunity for Barnes & Noble to be a really good thing to own, you know, as other bookstores fall by the wayside. Um, you know, I'm not sure that he's aware of exactly what's happening this minute in the bookstore world, where you know a lot of indie bookstores are sort of coming back. Um, but you know, I think maybe the slowdown in the growth of eBooks makes somebody like him think, hey, there's going to be a place for a Barnes and Noble in 10 years. And um, you know, if that's the case, you know, Barnes and Noble is in a really good position to be that company. So I think he sees in the next year what the rest of us sort of see is Nook is either going to get sold or carved off or, or will go away. And um, Barnes & Noble will once again resume being able to book some pretty healthy profits. Because even though Nook loses you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, Barnes & Noble has still been a profitable company throughout all of this. So imagine how much more profitable it would be if it wasn't losing all that money. Yeah, I mean, their bookstore and their college bookstores do really well. And, you know, sure you hear about the odd store closing here and there. But, you know, for every few stores that close, a new one opens. So... It's uh yeah I, I see Barnes and Noble as their book their core book selling business is extremely profitable and 
you know, um, I'm sure everyone's well familiar with sort of the the cumulative losses and the, the executive flip-flopping and, you know, a lot of uh, senior executives at the company have been leaving lately, like uh, Jim Hilt, which I'm sure uh, who you're familiar with. He was sort of uh, one of the architects of uh, the ebook division at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, the company has lost um, several senior level executives over the past six or seven months. I mean, first of all, William Lynch, who was really uh, he was the CEO of Barnes & Noble until the summer, and he was really uh, the, the champion for Nook. He, he sort of led the charge on Nook. He basically brought that company from nowhere to somewhere, and um, <clears throat> he, he got the ax. And then uh, he was replaced by Michael Husby, who was also sort of running Nook, and now he's CEO. And now that he's CEO, you see Jim Hilt is left, Bill Saperstein is left, um, several other very key Nook uh, e-book technology and software folks have left. Really all three phases of that business have seen senior level executives depart. Um, and it could be for a number of reasons. Uh, it could be that, you know, Hoospy, they weren't Hoospy's guys. And, you know, once Hoospy got in over the summer, the process began of trying to get them out, push them out, replace them, etc. It could be that the continued poor results are finally taking their toll and these executives are finally getting uh, the comeuppance for the poor performance could be coincidence that, you know, these three guys all happen to just leave at once. It could be that they're smelling something in the company that isn't going to go so well. They're seeing what a lot of us on the outside are seeing, that, that the prospects aren't so bright, and they're looking for uh, newer and, and, and better horizons and greener pastures. So it's not necessarily that these executives are leaving the company because the company is somewhat in turmoil, although in my experience reporting on companies and people moves, that's probably what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when new management comes in, you always bring in your own guys to, you Usually know. Usually that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, you present some very interesting uh, perspectives on that. It could be a lot. It could be a myriad of factors. We just don't know. But it, I wonder, you know, with, with Saperstein and uh, with uh, Hilt, what, what, are, what do you think they're going to do next? Because they, you know. Pretty well, the world's their oyster right now. They just have so much experience with starting an ebook and starting a hardware division from scratch and getting it on into a retail environment. You know, uh, Nook, up until recently, they did kind of well for themselves, especially like when they first got onto the scene with uh, the Nook Color and, uh, you know, their, their Nook e readers. They, they did well, they sold well, and, and it was extremely profitable. And then it kind of cumulatively saw losses. But what do you think is going to be next for these guys? Because they have a lot of experience. Yeah, you know, there are companies out there that probably would be happy to have some of that experience on their side. I'm thinking of Samsung in particular, which um, has seemed to want to make a more aggressive push for the ebook business in the U.S., um, and among the very large technology companies going after that, probably has the least experience in that arena. Google's been doing it for a long time and has a fully staffed team. Um, you know, Kobo seems to have a strategy that's working for it internationally, and um, you know, Hilt and Saperstein don't really have any international experience or very, very little. Um, you know, I think Sony has uh, been plodding along forever. Really, was the the OG of the ebook game in the U.S. and just hasn't. Uh, 
hasn't really done anything since that. So I don't think Sony would be a good a good place to go. I mean, but but the main answer is I don't know. Um, you know, it's not like these are guys are coming off a successful IPO or a successful startup exit. I mean, they're 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 leaving a little bit in shame, uh, probably. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be highly coveted executives. You know, you're right; they have a ton of experience. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one of them end up at, at Samsung, particularly Jim Help, because um, Samsung doesn't probably need much help on the hardware side. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been paying attention to a lot of news lately, and you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, he he owns a newspaper now. You know, he's always looking for talent. You have Vox Media that's shifting things around. You have uh, Facebook launching their own dedicated news uh, app soon. I mean, th there's a lot of companies that are branching off into news and to, to reading type of things and uh, there's a lot of startups now that are launching and you know I, I don't think that those guys won't be out of a job for very long if they have the inclination to jump right into something right away as opposed to maybe relaxing after many years of turmoil you know absolutely I mean listen I think after they probably worked very, very, very hard. I mean, the senior-level executives at companies like this that are in pitch business battles, I mean, their life is their work a lot of times. You rarely see these guys have much of a work-life balance. And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they take time off. I mean, they, the company isn't competing with Amazon the way that it used to. But it's still a very large company that had a lot of success selling e-books and selling devices. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't come overnight. They worked very hard for that, even though they're not – the company isn't winning the battle right now. Um, doesn't it's the accomplishment is nothing really to sniff at. So I wouldn't be surprised if they took time off. If I were them, I probably would do the same. Yeah, um, I totally agree. So we have some news items you wanted to talk about today. Uh, one of them is the loyalty that a lot of ebook buyers feel towards a specific company or a specific ecosystem. Yeah, you know, I, I was at Digital Book World talking to a lot of senior level executives at um, the big ebook retailers, and uh, it really raised the question to me, you know, how loyal are their customers? They're in these massive price battles, right? And, you know, they're lowering the prices of books like the Goldfinch to under $2. Um, you know, books that would, if you wanted to get 10 years ago, would have been a $35 hardcover or nothing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really just a crazy situation out there with the pricing and, and the competition. And I'm wondering, you know, what is this doing? Um, so I went to the Codex Group, uh, Peter Hildick Smith. The, the Codex Group surveys thousands of uh, readers and ebook readers across the U.S. every month about how they buy things and what they do and how they make purchasing decisions and how they discover new books and asked him to look at his data and see if he could answer this question for me. And he absolutely had the data. So 86%, that's, that's roughly uh, 7 out of 8, people who buy e-books buy from only one retailer. So if you are an e-book buyer, there is a very high chance that you only buy from Amazon or you only buy from Nook or you only buy from Apple. And in fact, those three retailers that I just mentioned are the three main ones that make up the bulk of that 86%. Now, when you look at the rest of the, the ebook buyers, that one out of eight, that person um, is more likely to be someone who buys from uh, some of the smaller retailers. Um, uh, the bulk of, say, Sony's customers or Kobo's customers in the U.S. are made up of people who float between retailers. And no surprise here, 
the number one uh, place where they get that 14% gets its books, Amazon. So when it comes to this price competition and sort of attracting those, those, those buyers from other retailers, it looks like Amazon is doing the best job. Uh, and when it comes to building new audiences, if, if you're not Amazon, Apple, or Nook, um, it's a really it's an uphill battle big time because people are very, very loyal to those uh, three companies in particular. Um, so I think for ebook retailers, you know, the message is if I'm them, you know, the price competition, it may not be worth it. Um, it they might be better focused on just continuing to retain their core customers by doing things like giving them very good service, giving them very good selection. Um, and, you know, every time they price the Goldfinch for a couple of dollars, I mean, they're losing millions of dollars on that. Uh, it may not be worth it because they may not be acquiring many new customers. So this this poll or when they um, talk to consumers every month, is this mainly just U.S. customers or are they varied uh, in different countries? This is U.S. customers. So this is, this is U.S. ebook readers and I think that's a really good question because in other countries the market share uh, spread is very different and the market itself is very different. We are in a very mature ebook market in the U.S., the most mature ebook market. Uh, in places like the U.K. and Canada, it's also very mature but still different. But then when you go you know, farther afield to other, say, New Zealand and Australia or uh, Germany and France, these are, these are different markets that are going to have different profiles. Yeah, I know in Canada, I, I track the market pretty quickly you know, uh, living here, I mean, I, I track it and it looks like, you know, you're, you have Kobo, you have Amazon and then you have Sony and Sony cumulatively declining in terms of, um, the amount of people that are reading the book. It seems like every quarter they're, they're moving down at least a percentage point or two. And I think that just, it's a retail visibility you know uh, any bookstore in Canada you can buy a Kobo device but you can't buy a Kindle device you can only buy Kindle devices at places like um, you know former Radio Shack now the source you know uh, mainly electronic shops is where you're gonna find Kindles whereas bookstores that's where you're gonna find Kobo's which is the bulk of the people that actually make the the buying decisions when they're in a bookstore and they're hey what's this you know and they they, they check it out and now, uh, in most Indigo stores, especially chapter stores, they all have tech zones now where they sell iPads, iPad minis, and things like that. So I could really see Apple's market share in books in Canada slowly on the upwards trend, but it's still fairly negligible in people buying from them on a very, like, sort of a loyalty basis. So it's a given that people are, are loyal to a specific ebook e system and then you sort of have those mercenary types that will, you know, they, they, they're the types of people that would have bought from FictionWise and, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they'll subscribe to, you know, Oyster or something like that, you know, or maybe they'll just like float around and get the best deals possible. What do you think if you're a loyal Nook customer, what do you think companies like, you know, Sony or Apple or Amazon – what do they have to do to sort of get those customers? You know, if you're, if you're, you know, is it in those companies' best interest to target those loyal customers and bring them over to their ebook ecosystem? I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I did. And, uh, and as I was talking to some of these retail folks, you know, we're talking about what they can do. And you know, for the record, I didn't sit down with Amazon this time around. Um, and and you know, they are they've got tricks up their sleeve, but 
you know, they, they're at a loss, I think, to some degree of how to compete. Um, you know, I think a lot of these retailers see what Amazon is doing as predatory pricing. Um, predatory pricing is, of course, against the Sherman Antitrust Act, but it's extremely hard to prove. And, you know, furthermore, uh, the Department of Justice seems to be very interested uh, these days in cases where, uh, where consumers are going to pay more. And predatory pricing is consumers are usually paying less. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure there is a good answer to that question. What do I, you think? I, you know, I think that that's sort of the the question that probably everybody is sort of asking on the, the executive level at all these companies. It's like, how do we increase our market share? How do we get more people buying from our ecosystems? Uh, companies like Kobo, it's all about international expansion. The more foreign markets that they enter, the more bookstores and retailers they get selling their devices. Obviously, their user base increases exponentially. But if you look at, say, the, you know, of course, you're in the U.S., I'm in Canada, so we, we tend to look at things in, in a North American uh, spirit. It's hard because it seems as though that pricing is really the only factor that these companies employ. So if, um, you know, Sony has a big deal Amazon algorithms automatically match it. Kobo algorithms are automatically match it. So I don't know if price alone is is the definitive be-all, end-all factor in trying to make people switch to your ecosystem. I think it's more like you have to offer more compelling reasons. Uh, for instance, uh, Amazon purchasing Goodreads. It's a compelling reason now to buy a Kindle because you could, you know, click on the, the G icon and start talking to people that are of like-minded souls, you know, or or maybe discover new books in sort of a, a catch-all social media environment. It doesn't really look like companies like Barnes & Noble or Sony or iBooks or any of these other companies they're they're not really doing anything other than competing in price. And I think that they really have to reevaluate the ease of use in their ecosystem, being able to buy, you know, add multiple books to your shopping cart. Um, I talked to Kobo about this at Pepcom. And one thing that I asked them, they hadn't really considered, which is like bundling books. So, you know, if I want to buy three books of the Hunger Games, I have to check out each book at once, I can't, you know, you know, I can't add them all to the cart and buy them uh, at once. I have to buy the first book, I have to buy the second book, and I have to buy the third book, which is three different checkout procedures. In a lot of cases, with, um, you know, say with the with the Harry Potter um, series of books, or if you look at, um, you know, say the Lord of the Rings trilogy, seldom are these companies bundling these books together. And offering like a dollar off or two dollars off. Instead, you have to buy them all one by one. And I thought that ebook bundling is would be a kind of a cool thing for these companies to do to compete because you could offer a trilogy of books, or you know, if there's six books in a series or ten books in a series, like you look at uh, the Wheel of Time series. I think they're at like twelve books. There's no way for you to buy all 12 books at once, you know, and maybe save a dollar or two or just to make the purchasing easier and saying, you know, I heard a lot about these books. Hey, I could buy all 12 at once and, you know, I'm good to go. You know, I would like to see more companies experimenting with ebook bundling, even if it's like just offering the ability to buy them all, you know, in a one shot despite you know a discount would be a bonus but i think that 
bundling would be a kind of a cool thing. And I haven't really seen a lot of companies do it. I've seen publishers offer the ability to buy the Hunger Games trilogy as a one shot. But, you know, on our on an ebook reselling level, these companies are not at all concerned with ebook bundling. Do you think that that would be a compelling sort of feature for customers? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. And I can tell you from experience at FNW Media, which is, you know, one of uh, Amazon's, are the, the company's biggest customer, but it's also a competitor because FNW has a very large e-commerce business. Um, and one of the things that FNW has had success doing is bundling things, not just e-books with other e-books, but, but e-books with print books and other uh, products. So uh, FNW stores sell third-party products that help the enthusiasts and hobbyists uh, you know, entertain themselves and, and, and participate in their hobbies, and they sell content along with those things. So I think bundling uh, and unique offerings is something that uh, consumers really want. A community could be another thing that, that consumers might want to be a part of. Um, you know, Goodreads has obviously helped Amazon, has, has a ready-made uh, book reading community that it now basically owns. Um, but I think people like to be part of a community and they want to be sort of taken care of as part of a community. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of these other ebook retailers, the, the experience isn't as good as at Amazon. And if these, they're going to compete, you know, in the long term, I think it needs to be as good or better. Uh, Amazon just has the best buying and reading experience. It's really, really, really easy for me to buy uh, and read Kindle books very quickly. Um, so, yeah, bundling might be it, but I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, Amazon just really has it all. There's Amazon Prime, there's the one-click purchasing, there's the extremely aggressive pricing, um, the devices are best in class, I would say. I mean, I, I don't read a lot on a tablet, and I think iPads are a million times better than anything else out there that I've seen. Um, but, the, but the e-reading uh, products and, and the apps, uh, the e-reading apps, Amazon has great, uh, a great e-reading app. So, you know, I think it's a, it's very much an uphill battle, but there are people much, much smarter than I am who are working on this problem, and I, and I think they'll probably come up with something. Yeah, and don't forget, uh, which is segueing into the next thing I want to talk about, Amazon does audiobooks really well. They uh, had purchased an extensive portfolio of AudioGo titles, uh, which include uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, AudioGo, I believe, was a, a BBC audiobook division. Uh, they had sort of licensed and retained a little bit of ownership to a UK company, and they also had a presence in the US, but they, uh, you know, went bankrupt, and uh, Audible ended up getting the licenses for the vast majority of the titles. Uh, and so the BBC is actually going to be able to make a little bit more money from uh, the Audible type stuff. But uh, audiobooks in general are starting to uh, catch on. Um, it's almost becoming a billion dollar uh, business in terms of uh, global revenue. And Overdrive, who is pretty well one of the premier, if not the best company that libraries turn to for digital distribution strategies for both uh, audiobooks, video, and ebooks, uh, Overdrive announced that all of their audiobooks now are going to be DRM free. And they're going to go from a WMA format, which is sort of like a Microsoft encryption format, to just as the standard MP3. I think that, you know, all in all, MP3 is really what a lot of publishers produce their audiobooks in. It's the most common, it's the most accessible format. Anybody could really play it. And so I think that the turnaround time from 
publishers issuing audiobooks to overdrive being able to distribute them, I think you'll probably see, you know, when a new book comes out, you'll probably immediately see the new audiobook come out, provided that the publisher is doing a simultaneous release, you know, issuing the print book, issuing the the ebook, and then, you know, issuing the, the audiobook. What are your thoughts, Jeremy, on, you know, audiobooks in general? Well, it's a small but growing segment. Uh, digital has been very good to audio overall, um, it, it, making it just much easier for people to buy and consume audiobooks. Um, but it's a very, very small part of the business. I think uh, where publishers and retailers may find uh, a, sort of a, a new angle to success is in bundling. Um, you know, bundling the audio and the ebook and maybe even the print book together. And, and really the only retailer that has the, the power to do this really well and quickly is Amazon. Um, but, but other retailers uh, probably could bundle the, the other kinds of digital content really well. And of course, you know, the indie retail platform startups like Gumroad and Gangsy uh, have been offering uh, multiple file bundling, uh, multiple file type bundling for a while now. Um, so, so it is an interesting angle to look at when it comes to business, but I think it's marginal compared to the main uh, part of the business, which is really selling ebook bestsellers, selling the big titles. Yeah. Um, one bit of news that uh, I had uh, talked about, uh, it happened sort of about the end of last week, is Adobe has changed the way that they encrypt EPUB and PDF files. Uh, they say that they're making it more concerned, and the primary reason why they're doing this is to uh, curb ebook piracy, which is uh, a growing problem in terms of. Um, you only have to really Google to find, you know, one-click removal tools for Kindle books, for Sony books, for Nook books, for Kobo books. Um, there's popular programs like Caliber that allow uh, users to manage their device a little bit more effectively. There's plugins for that that will just remove D DRM on the fly. Um, di digital rights management, If for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's basically ebook encryption. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo all use their own. So Barnes & Noble and Kobo use the EPUB format, but they use something called Schema, which is their own sort of proprietary ebook encryption suite, which is why if you buy a Kobo book, it's not compatible with Nook e-readers. Or if you buy a Kindle book, it's incompatible with every e-reader. So when I looked at this, I found out that Adobe's biggest customer for the stock DRM is Sony. And those companies that actually use the Adobe DRM only account for 4% of the global e-book market. So it's fairly paltry. This well, do you think that that the that the Adobe DRM sort of leads the way or sets an example for the other technologies that are used? You know, I know a, a lot of say magazine publishers that use like the Adobe suite of publishing tools to uh, incorporate metadata or to incorporate like analytics tracking code. Uh, I know a lot of people that use the Adobe suite. Um, for ebooks, for you know, but mainly it's for metadata and for analytics. It's not because they're using uh, the Adobe encryption. So I don't know how you know it's such a small percentage of people actually using this, like on a mainstream uh, business level, that I don't really know how this will affect piracy because piracy will always find a way. Yeah, but it's an arms race, though. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Just give up? 
No, I, I hear what you're saying. That authors and, and publishers want it. Authors and publishers want it. And, you know, authors and publishers are a really important part of the, the publishing food chain. So, um, and agents as well. So as long as those guys want to try to do something to prevent people from indiscriminately sharing and copying files, um, there will be companies out there that are going to try to help them. So I think that you're right. You know, it, it's piracy will always find a way. But you know, what, what, what's Adobe supposed to do? Just just throw its hands up and say we give up? Um, you know, they're just going to keep on plugging away, and, and it'll be a cat and mouse game from here until uh, eBooks are no longer a thing. Well, I have a scoop. I uh, I talked to somebody at Adobe. Uh, I can't mention them by name because I don't want to get them into trouble, but. Apparently, what Adobe is experimenting in at right now in their labs is always on digital rights management. So, what they're trying to do is develop an unbreakable encryption system that will necessitate your tablet or smartphone or e-reader to always be online. So you'll always have to maintain an internet connection to verify that you own the book. It's sort of what uh, Electronic Arts does with its origin service or uh, there's a lot of game companies that if you want to play SimCity uh, you have to always be online and have an internet connection and this way it verifies your key, it authorizes you that you know you have purchased this title and it's supposed to make the whole process more secure and to date hardly anyone's been able to circumvent that. Do you think that there's that an always on encryption system for ebooks is the smart play for the future? Well, I mean, as a reader, and also, you know, not as technologically savvy as you and probably some of the other listeners, that sounds horrible to me. Um, you know, I read a tremendous amount in places where I don't have an internet connection. And in fact, I deliberately turn my internet connection off when I'm reading because I don't want to be bothered by text messages and, and things like that. So, because I read a lot on my phone. So that just sounds terrible to me. And I, and I feel like, you know, the, the thing with DRM is with everything that, is about e is ebooks is that there's a balance between you know what you as the publisher and author might want which is nobody can steal our files no matter what and what the readers want and i think you know for most readers DRM is invisible for mo most readers aren't trying to share and copy their files they don't even know about what DRM is or that it exists they just buy the book they read the book they buy the next one they read the next one right but if you make it so that some, you know, one of these normal consumers, these normal readers who's just reading the book and then all of a sudden their Wi-Fi goes down and then all of a sudden the book disappears and it's like you're not connected to the internet, you can no longer read this book, I think you'd see a lot of complaints. But uh, you know, that's just me shooting from the hip there, so I don't really know. Yeah, I know that they're developing an always-on technology. Where you're going to see it, it's unknown. I mean, it may make sense to put it on cellular cellular devices like stuff that has a data connection that's not on Wi-Fi because I, the, the very point of an e-reader is to take it on vacation where there's not a Wi-Fi area or to take it to a beach or you know to take it to your cabin you know to get away from it all for the weekend if you have an always on encryption method like that it's going to really alienate the e-reader base you know the people with dedicated e-readers that really there's very few but Amazon and maybe one or two others that actually have a data connection. 
and to have a data connection, it costs a lot more money. And a lot of people buy e-readers because they're cheap and cheerful. I, the always on data thing, I can see where they're coming from, you know, because you could sort of eliminate almost the DRM by always sort of be pinging the service to make sure that you are reading a title that you claimed ownership of. But I could see that on a consumer level as being bulky, unwieldy, cumbersome, and just a kick in the pants. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see how it's implemented, but there are a lot of things that I think consumers if they were explained to them before they saw them, would have not really taken to. Um, so we'll see how this works. But I think, you know, as long as most consumers are still sort of not really aware of DRM, I think whatever they want to do will be fine. Uh, when consumers, you know, are hampered by it, I think that's when uh, they'll get upset. Okay. Uh, before we start the show, you said that you wanted to talk about a penguin departure. Yeah, I think it's an interesting news. It's important news. Uh, so Molly Barton, the global digital director for Penguin, has left the company, is leaving the company. Uh, she helped launch Book Country. She was in charge of it. Um, she was responsible for many Penguin initiatives. She was heavily involved in Bookish, uh, Bookish's launch. Um, That's the Facebook and, uh, thing that they have, right? Isn't it? No, Bookish. Bookish, the retailer. Oh, okay. Yeah, Penguin and Simon and & Schuster and Hachette. Uh, were the three in a joint venture, and she was in charge of Penguin's part of Bookish. Um, so she was a very important executive. She was rose up the ranks very, very quickly. Uh, she went from assistant editor to global digital director in seven years. Um, she uh, is very, very smart, and she's going on to be a, a faculty at Wesleyan University uh, for at least a semester or two, and then uh, also will be on the advisory board of several uh, you know, New York and San Francisco-based publishing uh, startups. And the reason I think it's interesting is because you know, this is uh, what happens when two big companies merge, is who joins the senior executive team, who joins sort of the, the the unit executive teams and, and who leaves. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that, you know, had the two companies not merged, Molly would probably still be there. Um, you know, the company told me that the that each of the divisions of the units are now going to run all their own digital initiatives. They will not be replacing her. And Brandy Larson, who was brought in about a year ago to help with Book Country, will now be its director. So we have uh, a little bit of uh, statistics about young children's media in uh, educational use. And some of it has uh, been declining sharply, according to a DBW article. Yeah, so um, we're seeing a lot of stuff come out right now about what's happening in children's e-reading. And one of the things that we're learning is that as children get older, they spend more time with screens but they also spend less time with educational content. So even though their content uh, use on screens is going up, their, their educational content use goes down as they get older. And I think this represents a big opportunity for publishers. Uh, parents make content purchasing decisions much uh, based on the perceived educational value of the content. Uh, so for as children get older, I think there's a gap that publishers can fill for digital educational content. I mean, the screens is where the kids are. And the parents, you know, ostensibly don't mind them being there, but I think the parents would be happier if they could buy their kids more educational content. So I think this finding is really uh, represents an opportunity for, for smart and aggressive publishers. 
So if they're not, you know, if as kids get older, the less educational content they're consuming, what are they doing? Do you know? The study didn't go into that exactly what they're doing. Um, but my guess is is the same thing that uh you know they're watching movies they're watching YouTube they're watching TV shows they're playing app, they're they're engaging with apps they're playing games uh, they're they're socializing with their friends I mean the same things that we all do on tablets yeah you know I we're at that level where tablets are coming down in price it seems as though that every household now has has one or is thinking about purchasing one so these devices are in the house and kids have their own you know on average um it used to be like you know a household used to have one tv and then they had two TVs, and now there's a TV in every room, you know? Um, it's almost mm-hmm. becoming the same thing with, like, tablets now. Uh, whereas the the kids' market, there's a lot of publishers betting big on both the kids' reading market for digital um, and the educational development market, trying to get it into schools, trying to appeal to kids. I know uh, Barnes & Noble bet big on... Um, kids like a kids ecosystem where they had the read and meet function the read and record uh source books uh does something like that it seems as though a lot of people are betting big on uh you know kids kids content do you think that kids content is the next big boom you know i think it is um we have seen the proportion of kids e-reading in the U.S. increase markedly over the past couple of years. Uh, right now, the number of uh, proportion of kids aged 2 to 13 who are reading digitally in the U.S. is uh, 67% uh, as of late 2013. Um, and I think that number is only going to go up. And we're, we're looking at a generation raised on screens. And I think as that generation ages, as technology becomes cheaper, They'll be more raised on screens, and then you know, and some time will pass, uh, and people having kids in five or ten years will be more comfortable with their kids, you know, consuming all of their media on screen. So I think book publishers have a tremendous amount of intellectual property. They know how to create and manage intellectual property, um, and the smart ones like you know, Random House and Sourcebooks and Scholastic and so many others are getting in on this and providing the content and the and the underpinnings for the content that the kids are going to be consuming this year, next year, and years from now. Before we wrap up the show today, something actually uh, was just brought to my attention about uh, a site that probably you're not familiar with and I wasn't familiar with until I got this story, but there's a a new uh, website slash business in the UK called Look for Books, and their business model is inserting your book cover into billboards, subway advertisements, uh, and even during an Amazon press conference. when Jeff Bezos was uh, unveiling the Paperwhite 2, there was a book uh, being displayed, and it was actually a book title from an indie author. Do you think that this is a viable business model? Because if you you look at Subways, most of the advertisements now are digital, so it's pretty easy to uh, flip things in there. More billboards. uh, You know, you live in New York, Jeremy, Times Square. It's all digital. It's very easy to... uh, I know with, uh, like, Thomson Routers and companies like that, you can actually pay them to put whatever you want, you know, 
know, to advertise your business, to advertise the product launch. Do you think that a service that just specializes in in promoting books or ebooks, do you think that's a viable business model? Um, yes, depending on the overhead. I think that services for authors and services that help publishers market their books are it's a very fruitful place to be right now. Uh, and I see that that kind of service is something that authors and publishers uh, could use, could both use. So yeah, I do think it's a viable business model, depending on overhead, um, because uh, you know if they could, there could be some technology that would help place uh, book advertising in unused inventory at a very cheap rate, or at very highly targeted inventory at a reasonable rate. Um, I think that you know publishers would use it, and I think it would all have to do with ROI. Uh, you know, if they spend a thousand dollars, are they going to get two thousand dollars back? Um, and if the answer is yes, then then I absolutely think it's a good place to be, and it sounds like a really interesting company. Yeah, I this is a company I think I'm going to try to approach for an interview and just see, you know, what are they really into? Because uh, I've gotten about three different emails today on this company, and uh, it just it looks very interesting. It's it's certainly. I know a lot of people in public transportation, like you ride the bus, most of the adverts are digital now. Uh, I know a lot of people when I used to take like the tube that a lot of people are reading on their phones, they're reading on their tablets and you know, if you could see like a book and it has a QR code, you can just like scan it and get the book listing, read a sample, you're pretty well good to go. So I, I don't know if it's all dependent on like pricing and availability, there's a lot of uh, questions but on a fundamental business level I think it's very interesting so uh, we'll check that out so before we wrap the show up today Jeremy do you have any final thoughts on anything that's happened in the last few weeks I would love to see people come and attend some free digital book world webcasts we have coming up one is coming up in just a couple of weeks and it's going to uh, discuss the results of our latest author report. Um, I just spent an hour on the phone today with the author of the report, Dana Beth Weinberg, who is fantastic at Digital Book World. Um, and we planned out what we're going to be saying uh, on this webcast. It's on Thursday, February 6th at noon, and it's free. And um, anyone who's interested in what's happening with authors right now and what authors want and why and, and what publishers should do about it should definitely attend this webcast. So that's all. So where can they go to find out more? They can go to digitalbookworld.com, and at the very top it says webcast. You just click on that. Or on the right-hand side, oh, well, on the right-hand side we're advertising a, a, a different upcoming webcast. But uh, the one that I'm talking about is, is a free one at the top of the webcast um, page on digitalbookworld.com. Okay, everybody check that out. And, uh, of course, thanks for joining me today, Jeremy. And uh, we'll talk to you again next Monday. Awesome. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show. Everybody take care.